Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Douglas Kenrick will join us to discuss the rational animal. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. science show. Well, when it comes to making decisions, the classic view is that humans are eminently rational, but growing evidence suggests that our choices are often irrational, biased, and occasionally even moronic. Which view is right, or is there another possibility? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Douglas T. Kenrick. Professor Kenrick is a professor at Arizona State University, and he's written the new book, The Rational Animal, How Evolution Made Us Smarter Than We Think. And Professor Kenrick, we're uh, very pleased today to have you on the Grok Science Show. Great to be here. Uh, certainly our pleasure. Certainly a very fascinating book, The Rational Animal, Evolution Made Us Smarter Than We Think. Here's how did you become interested in, in this topic of evolution and our rationality? Well, I've been interested in evolution and human behavior for a long time. been doing research in our labs where we basically activate what we call fundamental evolutionary motives. So things like thinking about acquiring mates as compared to thinking about getting away from the bad guys as compared to thinking about taking care of your kids or gaining status. And we look at how it affects things like what do I pay attention to? You walk into a room, who do you notice? And then later on, who do you remember? Well, it makes a big difference whether or not you're in the mode of searching for a mate as compared to trying to protect yourself from the bad guys. So we got a lot of sort of interesting findings over the years, and one of the things that we find is that typically men and women act very similarly when they're in a kind of self-protective mode. When When we're thinking about the bad guys who might get us, we tend to be nicer, both men and women. We tend to go along with the group. We'll conform more, and we'll make more conservative decisions. People in a mating frame of mind, you find that men and women now act very differently. Men start to act like peacocks. They start to show off. They go against the group's opinion, spend money on conspicuous consumption. So we wanted to know that there's this whole field called behavioral economics, where when psychologists kind of entered the field of economics, you alluded to this before, the old view The classic view, the Wall Street model, is that people have a little banker inside their head. We're eminently rational. We make shrewd, self-serving decisions. I think the poster child for this is Joseph Patrick Kennedy, who was JFK's father. He was eminently self-serving. He did extremely well. He was the youngest bank president in the United States. When they interviewed him at the Boston Globe, he said, I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30, which in those days meant a lot because there weren't a lot of millionaires. The average person made about $1,000 a year. But he made good on that. Then he went went on to found RKO Pictures, and he uh, got out of the stock market just before it crashed, the big Wall Street crash. He was set up to deliver liquor into the United States. The, The minute prohibition was no longer a law, he was bringing liquor into the United States. So he made millions and millions of dollars. And he became an ambassador, uh, even in his personal life. While he was working in Hollywood, he had an affair with a famous actress 
famous silent movie actress, and when her movie went over budget, he just dropped her and he left her holding the bill for, for the movie. So if, if you look at him, he looks like somebody who's very shrewd, very self-serving, very successful. But then along came a group of cognitive psychologists and experimental economists, and they made the argument, well, you know, people aren't really all that smart when we actually give them decisions to make. They tend to be kind of very shallow and simplistic in the way they make judgments. There's all kinds of biases. There's the, what they call the availability heuristic. There's loss aversion. There's just, a, a, in fact, I write a social psychology textbook, and we have a chapter on social cognition that's full of the kind of dumb things that people do. And you can kind of think of Joe Kennedy's kids and his grandkids seem to be the poster children for that. They seem to do a lot of irrational things. So his handsome oldest son, Joe Jr., who Joe Sr. thought would be the president of the United States, he, w he had qualified to go home from World War II. He'd flown lots of missions. He was a decorated hero. And before he went home, he decides to volunteer for another mission, flying this gigantic plane full of explosives straight at the German lines. Well, he dies. Then JFK makes a lot of decisions that seemed irrational later on in history. He, for example, would use the Secret Service to cover for him, to watch out for his wife while he brought beautiful women into the White House. And then his brother Teddy, he almost ruined his political career by going out one night drinking, sliding his car into the water, and his passenger ends up dead. And then Bobby's kids, two of them ended up dead, one playing football while he was skiing, another one dead in a, of a drug overdose in a hotel in Miami. And these look like, if you look at them, that generation, it appears like, wow, they fit this model. The people just make kind of dumb decisions. Well, a lot of my students who worked in my lab had had a background in economics. And so we looked at these two models and we thought, well, maybe they're really both wrong. Uh, that instead, we start to make the argument that people are deeply rational. By that, we mean that we do have biases. We're not, we don't have a, a little banker inside, as the Wall Street folks assumed, but we have a lot of biases, but those biases might not be so dumb after all. There might be an evolu evolutionary logic behind the biases that we might, in fact, turn our biases on and off in adaptive ways, depending upon when it might make sense. Uh, here, here's one what a very simplistic example of this. I go for a bike ride past a skateboarding park, and I see these teenage boys. They're out there doing what I think is crazy. They're sliding around on concrete surface with lots of pills, jumping up and down, spinning off their boards. They, they hurt themselves frequently. And there was a, a researcher, Bill Von Hippel, in Australia, went and studied kids in a skateboard park. What he found is that they turn their riskiness on and off, depending upon who's around. So they had a beautiful young woman an 18-year-old college student, come by while the kids were practicing their skateboarding tricks. And what they found is that the kids made lots more dangerous moves. They fell more, but they also made a lot more successful moves. And what Von Hippel found is that this was linked to their changes in testosterone. When the beautiful woman came along, their testosterone went up. And the more the guy's testosterone went up, the more the crazy attempts he made. Well, again, sometimes it pays off for guys to take risks. Again, let's look back at the Kennedy clan. The Kennedy clan, I went online and I found that there's at least 60 descendants, Joe Kennedy and Rose Fitzgerald, probably more like 100 of them. So from the kind of genes eye perspective, despite all of the possibly risky decisions that the Kennedys have made, the family's been very successful. 
They're, the existing members of the Kennedy family are well-connected, they're successful, they're popular. And again, from an evolutionary perspective, you don't want to assume that people are necessarily just doing kind of really dumb things. That when we do something that seems like it might be silly, there might be an underlying rationality. And I can give you one more spin on that, which, in which we're very different from the classic model. Typically, we tend to think there's one decision maker inside our head. If you're a Wall Street banker type, you think, well, it's, it's a banker. It's like a Joe Kennedy in there, a kind of a shrewd, self-serving, highly informed decision maker. If you're a behavioral economist, you think, well, you've got somebody in there who's kind of half asleep and a little bit dim-witted. But nevertheless, the assumption is that there's one person inside my head who's making those decisions. And it turns out, though, that evidence from neuroscience and from evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology has converged over the last few decades to suggest that the mind is modular. What does that mean? That means that we have even right now, there, our mind is processing lots of information in parallel. We only have one conscious. We can only keep one thing in mind consciously, but there's lots of things going on. Even the conscious decision-making mechanisms, they kind of switch depending upon which of these what we call fundamental motives is active. In fact, we make the argument that we have at least, when it comes to social decision-making, we have at least seven different sub-cells. I have one little person inside there who's in charge of finding a mate, another very different person who's in charge of keeping a mate, still another one who's in charge of protecting me from the bad guys, another one that's in charge of taking care of my children. And depending upon which one of those modules is active or which one of those sub-cells is running the show right now, I'm going to make very different decisions. But I'll give you one example from our laboratories. So here's, here's a phenomenon that the behavioral economists like to point out. They call it loss aversion. Loss aversion is this. An economist would say that $100 is worth $100. It doesn't matter whether you just spent the $100 or whether you uh, just gained the $100. It's worth $100. But what psychologists have found is that a lost $100 seems to have much more impact than a gained $100. People, in fact, will avoid all kinds of situations in which they might – they could even make a profit – but they really worry about losing things. And so, again, there's lots of examples that the behavioral economists have come up with, and they do seem to support this notion that we're a bit loss-averse. Now, on the one hand, that makes evolutionary sense, because if you think about it, our ancestors, they weren't like Joe Kennedy. They didn't have lots of money and lots of resources. They lived from day to day. They had to find new food every day. They didn't even have refrigerators. So they were always living at the margin, and anthropologists who studied hunter-gatherer societies show that people really, they do a lot of different things like risk pooling with one another to prevent themselves from starving. And so our ancestors were often at the edge of starvation. When you're, when you're at that borderline, a loss really matters. And again, well, that's good, but you certainly don't want to take the chance that you might fall below the borderline. So that's the adaptive side of it. But one of the things that we've found is that depending upon which of your evolved sub-selves is in charge, we can turn on or off loss aversion in functionally adaptive ways. So here's and the link back to what I was talking to you about before. Here's the example we use. We bring people in, into the laboratory and we ask them things like, how bad would it make you feel to lose $100? How happy would it make you feel to gain $100? And we typically find that people are a little bit more psychologically moved by various kinds of losses. But then what we do is we have some people make the decisions when they've been made to feel 
sort of self-protective when, when they have what we call their self-protective sub-self activated. And we do that by having to imagine you're in the house, you're alone, it's late at night, you hear some noises outside, it's a bit spooky, you think maybe somebody's trying to get into your house, and then you try to put it out of your mind, but then it becomes clearer and clearer. There's noises, now they're clearly inside the house. And now it sounds like somebody's coming up the stairs, and you reach for the phone, and the phone is dead. At that moment, the door opens and you hear this kind of evil cackle. So people, that gives people the creeps to think of a story like that because most people can imagine being uh, you know, scared alone in the dark at night. Other people, we, we try to activate their mating sub-self. We have them imagine you've gone on a vacation and it's the last day of your vacation and you run into someone in whom you're both mutually attracted to one another. And as the day goes on, you become more and more attracted. You can't stop talking to one another. You find excuses to spend every minute together. You have dinner together. And it ends with this romantic kiss on the beach. So after thinking about these different kinds of things, our different subjects now make these decisions about losses and gains. And what we find are two things. One is that when people are afraid, they do the thing that I told you about before. People become careful when they're in a self-protective frame of mind. So both men and women become even more loss-averse than usual. The losses are really salient, are really, you know, jump out at people when they're feeling afraid. And the gains, well, you know, they're not, as, they're not as actively interested in going out there to take chances. Now, what happens when we're in a mating frame of mind? Well, now you get something that looks like what happens in peacocks and peahens. In the animal kingdom, you typically find that the males tend to show off to say, pick me, pick me, and the females who have a higher, what we call parental investment, tend to kind of watch. That isn't always true. Some species that gets reversed. If the males take care of the offspring and do more than the females, as they do in certain kinds of bird species, then the, the males sit around and watch. But, but humans are, we're mammals, so the females make a high investment, and we can act like peacocks a good portion of the time, not always. But when we're in a mating frame of mind, what you find is that the men and the women now act differently. In a mating frame of mind, the women, if anything, they become a little bit more risk-averse. Not substantially. They're already a bit risk-averse. They become a little bit more. But what happens with the men is that loss aversion, which was powerful in the men when they were feeling frightened, it completely goes away. And in fact, it significantly reverses itself such that a man who has his mating sub-self activated, he is actually willing to take more risks than usual. He's actually more interested. He has more psychological movement from a gain than from a loss. So loss aversion, this supposed bias that seems irrational, it seems to turn on and off. And it turns on and off in ways that would have been adaptive for our ancestors. So is sort of knowledge of the fact that there are all these different sub-selves, is it possible then to override it, re realizing then that this is what's kicking in because of our evolutionary past, and then to act more economically rational? Or is it these things will just always sort of trump what economists would more think of as, as being a rational thought process? Yes, that's a great question. I really like that question. I, I think it's a question for which you don't have all the answers, but we believe that, in fact, you can. Knowledge is power. And so understanding what's driving your decisions can actually, you know, there's lots of techniques that psychologists have developed to help people avoid making the same dumb mistakes again and again. 
Not everybody is that responsive to those kinds of interventions, but some people are. So again, there's two sides to it. One is that those biases by the really knowledgeable, they can be exploited. People like Bernard Madoff was able to capitalize on people's tendency to, when our kinship or friendship modules are activated, we tend to trust. We trust our friends. You're my close friend and we go out to lunch. You say, I have no money today. Will you buy my lunch? Sure. And if you're my family member, you know, I'll pay for your college education. What Bernard Madoff did is he kind of, he exploited those things by, he, he essentially, he was a, a very active in the kind of the Jewish community of wealthy folks, and they trusted him because he had been, you know, a very successful investor, or at least appeared to be, and he managed to bilk people out of absolutely millions and millions of dollars because they trusted him and thought he was a member, he's a member of the tribe, more or less, he's a member of our group. And so lots of compliance professionals are very good at exploiting our sub-selves like the diamond industry does it, make you feel like, well, if you really love somebody, you really have to buy a bigger diamond. Um, and they'll even tell you, how many months of income if you really value this woman you should pay for this diamond? These things can be exploited, but I think we can defend ourselves against exploitation when we know, when we know or we have a sense that, that somebody is right now trying to make me feel like they're kin, but I know that they're really not a member of my family, then I should think about it. Before I make a jump, a rash decision, I ought to think about it. So one thing is just to always feel like you're on the edge of making a risky decision. You should ask yourself, if another one of my subcells was active, would I make a different decision? Vlad Griezkevich, uh, who's my co-author of this book, and I, uh, we have this suggestion that you kind of keep a little mental Rolodex of photographs of different people you know who can activate your different subcells. For example, you could have a little photograph in there of your young child, your daughter, or your son. And if you're about to make a risky decision, like as Tiger Woods and folks like that are occasionally want to do, be unfaithful to your wife because there's a temptation sitting there. Take out that little mental photograph of your daughter and probably it'll activate a different sub-self. And I, I think we can do that. We can self-consciously stop ourselves and say, okay, I know that this sub-self, my mating sub-self, often acts like one of those crazy teenage boys on the skateboard in Australia. And is that the one that I want to make a decision? Especially if it's an important decision, like an important financial decision. You wouldn't want to make it just because there was a, you know, you're a guy and there's a beautiful woman there trying to get you to make a, a purchase of a very expensive automobile. You'd really want to have a different sub-self active. And again, I think we can, we can have some conscious control of that. And that's, you know, part of the reason why read books like this is because knowledge is power. It certainly is true. Uh, we are really slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have uh, maybe some final words regarding thinking about our thought processes. Right. I think one of the things, I was actually just watching an interview with a guy named Randy Thornhill, who's a very well-known biologist, and he started off studying insect behavior. And he was asked, well, what surprised you over your 30 years in this field? And he said he was surprised at how slow people have been to really begin to think of, human, of the human mind in evolutionary terms. He thought it would be happening a long time ago because it's, it's an incredibly powerful tool. So I'd say one of the things is just to, we should get hip to what's known about the biology. We should try to look at ourselves in the context of other animal species. And there's lots of fascinating stuff coming out now on evolution and human behavior. And I think the more of it we read and understand, the better off we'll be able to be, you know, the better we'll be in, in terms of understanding how we behave, what motivates my decisions. Because 
we are, I mean, we call the book The Rational Animal. We are human beings, but understanding uh, the animal side of our humanity, I think it takes us a long way in terms of grasping what's behind our supposedly rational and often seemingly irrational decisions. Well, again, the book is called The Rational Animal, How Evolution Made Us Smarter Than We Think, and the author, uh, Professor Douglas T. Kenrick. And Professor Kenrick, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Douglas Kenrick discussing The Rational Animal. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. Mama, take this badge off of me. I can't use it anymore It's getting dark, too dark to see I feel I'm knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door It's time to play a game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic rational or irrational. So, from the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would rate them as being more rational or more irrational, and a little reason why. Professor Kennerick, you ready to play the game? Okay, this could get me in trouble. I, coming <laughs> I, hope, I hope it's more fun than troublesome, but here we go. First number one, rational or irrational, it's Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley's, uh, we actually talk about him in our book, as it turns out. Uh, he made some decisions that seemed remarkably irrational. For example, he spent the equivalent of about $742,000 in today's dollars to customize one of the hundred Cadillacs that he purchased over his life. He had it sprayed with, with a paint made from pearls and diamonds and had gold, he had the hubcaps gold plated. And so I would say that that's kind of taking this tendency to act like a peacock a little bit over the top. He, had, he certainly had the resources, but a lot of people and, and if you don't make quite as much money as Elvis and you become a rock star, uh, rock stars tend to live a fast life, and they often end up broke at the end. They go from rags to riches and then from riches back to rags again. Uh, all right, number two, it's Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke. Rational or irrational? Mm-hmm. Well, the, you know, the Fed Chairman acts on the Wall Street model, thinks very carefully about his decisions, and I think generally this, he's going to be rational in the Wall Street Wait, an interesting question, and I don't actually know the answer to it, is, is it'd be fun to look at decisions made by folks like him. How do they change when funny things happen in the news? So if there's something frightening or they've just gone to a romantic movie, do they actually change the kinds of decisions they make? I'd love to know the answer to that. And at, at this point, I don't. I'm sure a lot of people would be interested in his decision-making off the book. Right. All right, number three, it's the actor Charlie Sheen. Charlie Sheen, Okay. Well, again, Charlie Sheen has, has made a number of wild and crazy decisions in his life. I mean, he's in the same position in some sense as a guy like Elvis. When guys have a lot of opportunities, you know, when they become very famous or make a lot of wealth and they have a lot of mating opportunities, it often leads them to live in the moment 
and to do a lot of wild and crazy things. And actors and musicians are typically like this. One of the things that we talk about in the book is the distinction between the fast versus the slow lifestyle. The fast lifestyle is one in which the person is looking way down the line. Somebody like Bernanke is going to be more like this, thinking in terms of investments, thinking about what's going to happen in the future, not trying to make any rash decisions. Other people tend to live a more kind of fast lifestyle, like actors and musicians. We tend to think, well, the, the slow strategy sounds nice. It sounds delayed gratification seems like a nice way to go. But it doesn't always. I mean, for some people, actually, it doesn't apply to Charlie Sheen, um, but it certainly would apply to Elvis. If you come from a poor background, you don't always know that the future is going to be so good. People who come from poor backgrounds, like a lot of rock musicians and rap singers, they get some resources. They immediately want to spend those resources. They have an opportunity to you know, have some children. Let's have them now. And so I think that's people in the performing arts are living more the kind of fast, the peacock lifestyle. All right, number four, it's the talk show host Jerry Springer. Again, he's a guy in the kind of in the performing arts. I don't know where uh, Jer- if Jerry comes from a poor background. I think he might actually, but if he does, he would fit that model of the more fast lifestyle, where when you get resources, you spend them, you move quick, and you live kind of wild and fast. Live today because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? <laughs> right. Tomorrow may not come. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, finally, number five, uh, rational or irrationalist, the president of the United States, Barack Obama. Yeah, he's a great case because he sort of changed his strategy over his life. If you read his his biography, you know, he talks about smoking a lot of pot and not really knowing what he's going to do in life and dating different women and being kind of uncommitted and so forth and moving around a bit. At the same time, though, this is a guy who's spent all of his life investing in his human capital, meaning educating himself, you know, going to law school, and then getting involved in politics, making all kinds of connections. And now, of course, he's the president of the United States. Probably don't get to be the president of the United States unless you live a, a fairly slow lifestyle, although some of these guys change once they get in the White House. But I don't think, I don't think uh, Barack Obama has, but he's definitely the, you know, he's the family man now. He's got his kids. He seemed in public, at least, to get along very well with his wife and with his kids, and certainly been very careful about his investments and establishing a lot of social capital and educating himself. So I'd say he's a good example of the kind of slow and more rational from the middle class perspective. Again, what's rational kind of depends upon your social class, but definitely fits the, the middle class slow rationality model. Well, uh, again, the the book uh, is The Rational Animal, How Evolution Made Us Smarter Than We Think, and Professor Douglas T. Kenrick and uh, Professor Kenrick, want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game and, again, talking about your, uh, your book. Thank you so much. Hey, good to talk to you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.